0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Matt Taibbi has published an investigation, which you can read on his Substack, about a vast propaganda campaign called Hamilton 68, launched a year after Donald Trump won the presidency. It smeared critics' of the Democratic Party from the left and the right is Russian assets. Hamilton 68 claimed it used a complex data analysis and relied on so-called disinformation experts to ferret out fake news on social media that emanated from the Kremlin. Hamilton 68, a computerized dashboard designed to be used by reporters and academics to quote-unquote measure Russian disinformation was run by Democratic operatives, including John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, and figures from the intelligence agencies such as the CIA, the FBI, and Homeland Security, as well as neoconservatives and and establishment Republicans such as Bill Kristol, who do not support Trump and have been warmly embraced by the Democratic Party. Mainstream news outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, PBS, NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, as well as Mother Jones, which ran 14 stories based on the group's alleged research, cited Hamilton 68 as an authoritative source, even as the site refused to disclose the data or methods it used to make its assessments. Hundreds, if not thousands, of media headlines were flagged as Russian bot infiltrations in online discussions about Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Tulsi Gobbard's campaign, the Parkland shooting. U.S. missile strikes in Syria, and Bernie Sanders' campaign, many other stories. Fact-checking sites such as PolitiFact and Snopes also relied on Hamilton 68. Taibbi, given access to Twitter's internal memos and emails by Elon Musk, who bought Twitter, was able to expose not only fraudulent claims of Hamilton 68, but the massive failure of the press, which was a full partner in one of the worst forms of censorship, since the red baiting of joe mccarthy in the 1950s one that targeted people with dissident or unconventional opinions and accused them in essence of un-american activities so let's go back uh just set the stage this is uh i think his name was was it watts uh, this fbi guy clint watts uh but but set the stage right after the defeat of hillary clinton uh, the Democratic Party's response, just to remind viewers uh, of the loss, and how that response led to the rise of so called disinformation experts and groups like Hamilton 68.
1: Well, it's, it's a complicated story. I think the, the backdrop to the Hamilton 68 story is if you really want to look at the full timeline, the Columbia Journalism Review has a whole 26,000 word piece this week. But bit, the, the shortcut version of this story is that after Trump won the election, uh, Chris, there was immediately a a series of stories coming from different directions saying that the election was illegitimate, that Trump had been assisted by Russians, that there was some kind of collusion going on, uh, and that there was disinformation in the news media that had been amplified by Russian accounts, that Trump's own accounts and hashtags and tweets had been amplified by Russian forces. And then, formally, uh, in I believe it was uh, August of 2017, this group Hamilton 68 came out. Um, It's a it's an outgrowth of both the German Marshall Fund and a think tank called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and it was basically a tool designed to be used by reporters and academics that quote unquote track Russian disinformation by monitoring uh, accounts that were called linked. To quote links to Russian influence activities online. Now, they never disclosed what was on this list or what they were actually tracking. Uh, and it was only by accident, looking through some Twitter files, emails, that we find this big conversation where internally Twitter is saying, We've got the list, we're, 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 we've, we've reverse engineered it, and they're not Russians. These were mostly ordinary people out of 644 accounts, only 36 of them began in Russia, and the re- uh, most of the rest of them. From what I found, were ordinary people. A lot of them right leaning, but some of them on the left too. So it was a fraud. It was a big, gigantic media fraud, basically. I where I think, think the story here is equal parts disinformation on the part of this think tank, but also, uh, as you alluded to, the enormous uh, media failure. Which would be, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
0: On the, of those thirty six, weren't a lot of them uh, from your story. Uh, RT was Russia Today, It was the tele- Russian television station. There were, there were several RT-related
1: accounts. Um, there were some Sputnik accounts. There were some Russian embassy accounts. There was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so a lot of these were sort of official Russian accounts. Now, Hamilton eventually transitioned to a more open system that was only tracking Russian official accounts. Which is interesting in itself, that that's actually more of a real service. But what they did is they piled all these real accounts that had real opinions, uh, that maybe a channel like RT or the Russian foreign ministry, they might, they might have an interest that, that coincided. But these were real people in America and Canada and the, and Great Britain who had these opinions. They either favored Trump or, uh, were retweeting hashtags like walk away or fire McMaster. And this group just described that as part of a sort of Russian influence campaign when in fact it was
0: not that. Just give us, before we go in, you actually reached out to these people, some of these people, I'll let you explain that. But just give us a sense of the scale because it was massive. It was, it just dominated the press. I mean, we were talking before we went on the air uh, I think one of the reasons the media organizations are going to ignore it is because what are they going to say? We're, we're sorry for the last four years. Uh, it's such an egregious failure uh, that it's uh, you know it's uh, to to admit uh, what they did it, it it ends up looking like an article from the Onion. Yeah, it, this would be a difficult thing to retract in, in in a way. Like I I wanted to hear what the
1: innocent explanation was not only from this group but from all the media. Uh, companies that ran these stories, so I not only sent queries up, but I kind of threw a fit about it publicly um, on Twitter and online, basically, uh, you know, sort of daring them or taunting them in, in an effort to try to get comment out. Because I, if there was some, there was if there was some reason that I wasn't privy to, I w- I really wanted to hear it. And they they no commented me until the story made a big splash on the internet, at which point some of them started to come in. Now, the media people haven't commented yet, um, but there's no excuse for what happened with them because, you know, you and I both can reporters, Chris. If someone comes to me with a story and says we're tracking Russian, we have a magic box that tracks (laughs) Russian influence, um, and they are connected to all these organic political activities. You think about things like hashtag walk away, that's Democrats who are leaving the party. Hashtag fire McMaster, that's Republicans who... Are against H.R. McMaster, right? Hashtag release the memo. It's Republicans who want Devin Nunes' memo out. All these things were quote unquote links to Russian influence on all the biggest channels and the, the news, newspapers in America. And the, the source was, was right. wrong. I mean, again, what would you do as a reporter? i I'd say,
0: what's in the box, right? Tell me how it works. And they, they never asked that question. Well, I love this. This is from your, uh, article. It, it's uh, uh, Laura Rosenberg, the two founders of Hamilton 68, the blue and red team of former counselor to Marco Rubio, Jamie Fly and Hillary for America, foreign policy advisor, Laura Rosenberger told political they couldn't reveal the names of the accounts because the Russians will simply shut them down. Um, it's kind of like Joe McCarthy's empty briefcase. Oh, yeah, there, there are
1: exactly, you know, 57 communists. Right. No, I right. guess I'm mixing, right. That was Manchurian Canada. But, um, yeah, that's, that's what they were doing. They were saying inside this, this thing, there are uh, subversives who are linked to Russia, but they weren't that. Like I, I looked in the list. The, the chronology here is a little complicated. Twitter was upset about all this stuff. And so they figured out what was in the list be, being in a unique position to do it because they have the data. And so they recreate the list and it's full of all these people. It's like the consortium ender Joe Loria. Uh, there are all these sort of small, low influence Trump accounts with uh, ha- names like classy girl for DJ key. Trump dyke is another one. Uh, there's, There's lots and lots of people, and I I reached out to, you know, probably a couple of dozen of them, talked to a bunch of them on the phone. They're all over the world, but they're real people. They're not Russian agents. They just had these opinions. And so they were used as sort of fodder to create these fake news stories.
0: So why did the most prestigious and powerful media organizations, uh, and why did universities such as Harvard, Princeton, MIT, why do you think they so enthusiastically signed on for the witch hunt? Well, I, I think this is connected to a bigger picture that I don't fully have yet. I mean, I think
1: there are things that are going to come into view, maybe not necessarily for me, but but there are people working on it. And, and the idea is, I think, that the, this whole concept of Russian disinformation was used as a, a battering ram to get inside of companies like twitter and to, and to influence them to open their doors to sort of government efforts to moderate the platforms right so we we don't like the fact that you're not letting us censor this or that we want to have more co- direct control over things and you are being you're housing russian disinformation activities online they all got dragged to the senate floor and the house floor in late 2017 if you remember that uh, it started with Senator Warner, uh, Mark Warner of the Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence. Uh, it spread to all like the House committees, House House Intelligence Committee. And there was Energy and Commerce. Um, it never ended. The companies finally said uncle and, and let, it, let these people in. I think this is all related. They're, these stories were used basically to make the argument that you have to let us start censoring people.
0: So, uh, as you know, I was overseas for 20 years and it just smells like these CIA front groups of so CIA in some countries I was in actually owned newspapers. Um, but it's, it, we, do we know the genesis of it? Do we know how deep these roots go? So, um, that's, a, that's a tough question to answer yet. Yeah, I think
1: there's, we've we got to look at some of those things like these. They're certainly. Uh, if you look at the advisory board of who's on, you know, who's on the think tank that birthed this thing, it's chock full of former intelligence officials, Michael Morrell, uh, the CIA director. He was going to be Hillary's CIA chief. Um, Mike Chertoff who was the Homeland Security chief during the Iraq wars, uh, Iraq period. Uh, there's a deputy, former deputy head of the NSA on there. And then, House was also connected to a company called New Knowledge that was uh, an advisor to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, A number of their people were involved in testifying um, before the Senate and the House. Some of those folks, if you look at their backgrounds, uh, they have definitely government ties, Department of Defense specifically. Uh, So... We don't know yet exactly, but I think it's a very interesting question that um, we need to know more about the, the genesis of how this got created. And look, Hamilton 68 is just one of these shops. It was the progenitor version of this kind of activity. There are a lot of these things now sort of proliferating um,
0: on universities and then in, in the think
1: tank space.
0: Twitter was complicit because as you point out Roth I think was his name they they did through this reverse engineering realize that this was a scam uh but they did not make it public uh and continued to engage in the censorship that was demanded of them uh, talk about that and also can you talk about Twitter's secret blacklist so uh the first question yes Joel Roth was the trust
1: and safety chief at at Twitter who became kind of an infamous figure after the first batch of Twitter files was released because he was considered influential in suppressing the Hunter Biden story. But he actually pushed back against this. There's a number of uh, quotes from him. He's saying, I think we have to just call this out on the BS that is. That's one of the um, more explosive quotes from him. He's saying that people are, you know, it will, it will, this. Uh, dashboard will take um, ordinary Russians and accuse. I'm sorry, ordinary conservatives and accuse them of being Russian. Uh But he was he was met with a, a opposition within the company, sort of senior former White House officials um, who worked in the Comms department. We're, we're saying we have to be careful on how we push back. And uh, there's a, a, a gentleman named Carlos Magne who went on to work for Pete Buttigieg. Who says um, I want to push back too? But we have to play the longer game, uh, and so they, as you say, Twitter's role is is difficult to assess because, on the one hand, they didn't play ball with Hamilton sixty eight, but they also didn't make it public either. So I don't I don't know how you call that one. I mean, they 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 are complicit in a way
0: for sure. So there were three major classes of accounts um, on the Hamilton list. Uh, and they included media figures David Horowitz, Joe Loria, who you mentioned the editor in chief of consortium news uh, explained that 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 uh, th- those three accounts, how they worked
1: so they they were uh, there was as I said before, there was sort of a thin layer of real Russian accounts at the top then there's sort of a, a big middle layer of basically a real ordinary people with very low followings. There's a few kind of small media accounts in there. And Not small. Uh, I would say medium size, right? So Joe Laurier went on to be editor of Consortium. At the time, he was just a writer for Consortium living in Iraq. Um, he's on the, on the list. There is a uh, conservative uh, a broadcast speaker named Dennis Michael Lynch. He was on Newsmax and Fox. He's on there. Um, and there's a Internet site called the serious report. It's on there is a few media sites, but then mainly it's just these sort of regular people with less than 5,000 followers. And then at the very bottom, there is a thin layer. I would say somewhere between like beneath 20% and Twitter did a forensic analysis of this that was half dead kind of zombified accounts that uh, followers were decreasing. Now, that can happen for any number of reasons that 's Twitter. That could be because you got banned for something, um, or it could be because you're a bot. So, uh, it, the way to understand this, I think, is best real Russians at to the top, then a whole bunch of ordinary people, and then there might there's some suspicious accounts at the bottom, and they might just be commercial. Who knows what they are?
0: Uh, hard to say. So, let's talk about the press formula. I love it when you do these you have a habit of kind of boiling it right down to the essence. Uh, you said, here's the formula for how it worked. Defamation became uh, hardwired into the media landscape. Quote, research institute makes invented pot claims. Reporters toss said claims at hated targets, like Tulsi Gabbard. Headlines flow. Uh, you said the scam needs just three elements. Credential of someone like former FBI agent Watts, the absence of any semblance of fact-checking and the silence of companies like Twitter. Uh, but it was uh, uh, this, it, it did, it, it worked exactly as you uh, pointed out and with uh, just no incredulity. I mean, they just swallowed it whole. Yeah, and that's the part that is hard for me to grasp because I can understand a couple of reporters
1: getting beat by this, but all of them, I mean, that that's that's difficult to understand. And then there were obviously a few of us that I know you would never follow. you like, you and I talked about that at, at the same time, how ridiculous all these stories were. People like Glenn Greenwald specifically called out this site. I, I did as well um, a few times. There was actually, I believe it or not, a Tucker Carlson segment about it. But I would say 99% of the working reporters um, kind of fell for this. And nobody within these institutions to whom this was pitched backed up on it as far as I know. I haven't found that yet, but there are reporters coming out of the woodwork who said, oh, I got I got pitched by these folks and I didn't do that story or I exposed them. Because there's only two ways this can go. If somebody pitches you and you find out they're fake, you have an obligation at that point to kind of out it, don't you? I mean, yeah. I, I would think. So it's remarkable not only that it happened, but also now that we know what they
0: did, that that nobody's backing up. I well think. your fundamental job as a reporter is to determine whether it's fake or not. That's what being a reporter means. But there was zero effort. Right, and that's what's so amazing again. You know, you think about what
1: you did for a living, what I what I've done for so long. You think about what somebody like Jeff Girth did for you know years before this Columbia Journalism Review piece that came out this week, your phone call after phone call right to ascertain what happened. Um and during this period, you had these incredible pieces where somebody at a magazine like Mother Jones would say, here's what Russian bots are pushing today. And they would just look at the dashboard and then just start writing. Like, there, there's, there's no middle part to this where you make a phone call, right? Uh, so they basically automated the sourcing process for these folks, and it was phony. Uh so I, I think it's a very it's it's a dangerous thing. And the problem with this is that while this was a pretty pretty simple uh cartoonish almost scam. There are lots of more sophist- sophisticated ones out there that will be harder to unravel. Uh
0: I mean David Korn at Mother Jones has dined out on this for five years. The and and uh I think he I think you mentioned before he's written some kind of a response to Jeff Girth, what did he say? We, that the that uh... it's a, it's, a, it's you know the Columbia Journalism Review's twenty four thousand word pieces, is
1: a big fail, and you know again, but at first I kind of sympathized. I knew David a little bit, and um, you know in this business it happens. Like sometimes sources lie to you, and you screw up. Like the, you fall for something. It does happen. It it shouldn't. Right. I mean, we're it's not like being a doctor where where if you scrub, somebody dies necessarily. But um, but sometimes mistakes happen and you get a source like Christopher Steele, who comes to you and he's got all these credentialed people vouching for him. Right. You can see how that can happen. But you got to own it when that happens. You can't turn around and attack people for describing um, how that was wrong. I, I was very upset by Mother Jones' response uh, to this whole thing. That these these organizations need to reestablish their credibility. And Gurth, who worked you know at your paper, Bob Woodward, now is saying that they you know these companies need to look themselves in the mirror, and they won't do it. I'm
0: curious to hear your thoughts about what. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I will. I mean, I think it goes back to your book, Hate Inc. Uh, what first tell us what the response has been. I mean, it's been this deafening silence.
1: Nothing, nothing again. It's it's a, it's a 20, I guess, it started out as a 26,000 word piece. If a, a story, a book length investigation in the Columbia Journalism Review gets doesn't get you 30 seconds on CNN, then I don't know what will you know, what, what would prompt a response at this point. Well, but
0: what about what about but the data? I mean, you. Have printed the data and there's no response. Well, it's worse
1: than that. They've, they've actively said the opposite. I mean, not that I mind. I'm used to it at this point. But there've been lots of stories about how what an awful person I am and what an awful person
0: uh, right. Elon Musk but, is. Matt, all of that's true, but it doesn't uh, take away from the work of your journalism. I mean, it's irrelevant what kind of person you are. <laughs> oh well, yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, nobody's ever accused Cy Hirsch of being warm and fuzzy. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just silly. I'm, I'm joking, of course, because uh, uh, I like you very much. But the, but that, but it's, it just has nothing to do with the topic. Yeah, it's a total. It's a, you know, to use a journalism cliche, it's a non-denial denial, right? right? right like right,
1: you're, right. you're, you're not addressing the issue. Um, you know, the, there was an amazing line in the Mother Jones piece about the C.G.R. thing. Where they said they're saying Gertz is arguing that the closure didn't happen, but in a sense it did happen, right? Which is I don't know that that's exactly what we're trained to assess. Did it happen really, or in a sense, right? Like if it's just in a sense, we can't print it. Like that—that's
0: the entire purpose of a newspaper. What, what, what you're watching is the complete moral bankruptcy in real time of the press, which. And I'll go to your book, Hate Inc., because I think you made an important point, where media organizations, unlike the old model, have now uh, siloed themselves to cater to a particular demographic. And when you're catering to that demographic, what you're in essence doing is feeding that demographic what it wants to hear. Uh, And uh, we had mentioned the other day when we spoke about the Caliphate podcast at The New York Times, which was based on one source that was completely fraudulent uh and I'd been in the Middle East seven years I remember listening to just the first 10 minutes and it had this kind of snuff porn quality to it people being crucified on crosses and stuff uh, and it would just stank of uh of fiction I mean having come out of the Middle East and uh, th- there's uh th- there's no accountability I mean the re- the reporter it wasn't fired uh because they fed their demographic what they wanted to hear and I think that that has eroded accountability because it all becomes about stroking the demographic as a commercial model i'm just summing up you know the points you made in your book
1: oh no but you're you're absolutely right you're absolutely right yeah it's um yeah they the once upon a time right i mean and not the, not to be all back in the day about it but if you if you uh, printed something like Caliphate, if you did a story like that and put your whole weight into it, and it was completely fake, and you did no work to see whether it happened, it was a career-ending thing. It yeah. could be a career-ending, right? Yeah. And that hung over every reporter's head. That was the that was the defense mechanism of the business. Um, that's gone. There is no sort of damocles over your head now when you work. If you make a mistake, it's it's accepted it's understood because this is an entertainment product now it's not a it's, it's not a service or, um, or and you're not trying to determine the truth it's not like an evidentiary process so it's different I mean
0: I, I don't know how to think about it honestly well and if you if you report as you have done in such a way that discredits or critiques or undermines that narrative, then I think you and Glenn have become examples of this. You are very viciously attacked. I, I don't uh, follow it closely, but I think they have now calling you some kind of closet right-winger. I don't know what they're calling you, but, but, but that becomes a response. Yeah, that's the
1: go-to response. Now, the, the Washington Post amusingly actually described me as a con- conservative journalist <laughs> uh, in one of their pieces. And before I even heard about it, there was an up- such an uproar online the they. They sort of silent edited it uh, out of the piece. Um, right.
0: Isn't it the Washington Post that won the Pulitzer for the Russiagate material that they then took down off their website? Is that the same?
1: That's the same <laughs> Washington Post. that ran a, sort of a House editorial this week talking about how objectivity is dead. Um, and I'm just no fan of objectivity necessarily as a model, but as an aspiration. Absolutely. Like that that was what the business was all about. We're we're trying to just ascertain what's true or not. Like, that's kind of the basic function of what we do. Um, and, you know, they're moving into something, some other world now. And it's 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 very sad to watch.
0: Well, that's why they're crucifying Julian Assange. I mean, he, the Democrats loved him with the Iraq Afghan war logs. And then uh, he had the honesty to print the Podesta emails. And I, if, you know, if you don't Make though, if you have them and don't make them public, you can do that as a choice, but you can't then call yourself a journalist. Uh, so, I mean, I, I find the state, I mean, it's, and I've been in the business a long time, it's extremely depressing. I want to, before we close, bring up, so we saw the Biden administration attempt to appoint this woman, Nina Yanukovych, as the Russian disinformation czar. She's, well, she's, she, as the disinformation czar. Now, she's been, at the forefront of Russian disinformation, she calls Julian Assange, scum. So they tried to set this up in the Homeland Security. It was kind of uh, too much, too unpalatable to establish at this moment a ministry of truth uh, in the United States. Is that where we're headed?
1: I think that was the idea. Whether we're going to get there or not is, is an open question. I mean, I think the some of the companies don't want to go along. That's the subtext, actually, of this whole, the whole of Trump years is that the government wanted increasing amounts of control over these platforms. Some of the platforms, sometimes for reasons, because they were greedy and they wanted to keep some certain foreign markets open, pushed back. Um, and now, you know, there was in this, there's was been this increasingly this sort of um, intense cry for access by uh, agencies like the DHS, which was what Jackwitz was going to be. It was going to be under Homeland Security. While well, they did still go through with something like that. They just didn't create the open board. Lee Fong did a report in The Intercept outing how that works. We've seen sort of echoes of it in the Twitter files. And w- we do see how uh, requests for content moderation are routed through the fbi and dhs specifically there's a bureaucracy that's been set up so that's what they want whether they're going to get it absolutely or or how um, much they've gotten it is kind of an open question like the, as you see that some of the companies are breaking ranks openly and that's what this
0: argument is about well aren't they getting it through subterfuge in essence
1: yeah no they they're they're creating a panic around something and look yes these things all do exist. Like, there are foreign information operations that do exist. Russia has one. They based it on ours, but they do have one. They, they do, do these things. They do create social media accounts. They do try to introduce themes into our conversations. And there are domestic extremists in America. as You know, there, there are lunatics on all sides. But there are, of course, racists and crazies and people who make threats. It's a, a difficult question, Know how to deal with that. But they amplified these problems in order to get access. They said, these problems are emergencies. We must get in. You must let us have control. And they lied about the scale of it.
0: Well, the the difference is this isn't against extremism. It is about protecting a neoliberal order, uh, which has visited tremendous suffering on the American people that they have no intention of changing. In fact, they will accelerate it. uh, and, And so it becomes, in essence, finding a scapegoat. I mean, the reason... Trump wins the elections and not because the white working class has been uh, impoverished and dethroned and uh, but because of Russia. Um, That was Matt Taibbi. Uh, You can read his article, which you should read on his Substack on uh, Hamilton 68. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.